I'd ask as you open up uh, to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, that you would stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll get into our text this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And Mark tells us, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Let's just pray again. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your blessing on your word. The reading of it, the preaching of it, Father, and the hearing it, that we would be a people that would be changed. Father, we live in a world that is casual to the call of discipleship. Lord, uh, we call ourselves followers and very little in this past week would be seen as following you. And we come to this text, Lord, and we see how wayward we have become. Lord, I pray that you would speak through these words, that you would call us back to your mission. You would call us back to what you would have for us to do. Lord, I pray that there would be confession, that there would be commitment that would come from this message so that we could be a people, not just a church, but a church and people that are disciples, followers of yours, even when it's difficult. Lord, I pray a special blessing on myself this morning, Lord. You know I'm not feeling well, and I just pray that you would speak through me amidst that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been continuing through this series uh, out of the study of Mark, we come to a text that we need to learn as a people, where we see what the life of Christ is really all about, what it involves, and most importantly, what it will cost us as we follow Christ. This text is probably one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture because it teaches us how we've grown casual in our following of Jesus Christ. The Barnard Group recently did a study asking born-again believers how committed they were to the cause of Christ and to following Christ in their daily life. And the study and the findings, quite frankly, shocked me. Of that study, it said that 46% of all who called themselves Christ followers considered to have any real level of commitment to Christ, meaning that it was involving their everyday life, that the decisions they made, the power over temptation, the willingness to share the gospel with unbelieving friends and loved ones, was either a commitment or it wasn't. If we were just to say we were an average evangelical church, that would mean more than half of us would say that we have no real commitment to the cause of Christ. And yet here I am blown away that God would still allow us to call ourselves the church. During the times of Nazi rule in Germany, a Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer not only reminds us, but tells us the truth of what it would mean to understand and know the cost of discipleship. 
in a country, in a time where pastors were silenced and even imprisoned and killed, Bonhoeffer would learn that following Christ would cost him dearly. In his book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, which was published in 1937 at the height of Hitler's reign in Germany, it would show what it truly means to follow Christ in a modern world beset by dangerous and a criminal government. And the thing that I love about this book, and you've never read it, The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer, you can still pick it up by Amazon or any of those bookstores. It's not simply a pastor's pleasant platitudes about difficulty and strife, but it tells us what a true life in Christ will commit itself to, even to the very end of one's life. You see, during the early days of Hitler's reign, Bonhoeffer would be invited to come and teach at a U.S. seminary, and he would do that. And you would think during the time of Nazi Germany for a pastor to be given a free fare to the United States and an opportunity to live here in the freedoms that we have, you would think what a great gift, what a great opportunity. Hasn't Bonhoeffer gotten the lucky draw that he was looking for? But I want you to know out of the safety of the United States of America, looking back to his homeland, he shares this with another incredible statesman named Reinhold Niebuhr. He says the following, I've come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our nation's history, and I must do it with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life here in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that the Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from a place of security. What Bonhoeffer was saying is, i got to go back to Germany. And if it means I'll lose my life for the cause of Christ, I will, because my safety is not enough. Living here in the luxuries and the safety of America is not good enough when I see the need for the cause of Christ to be reaching out to a lost world of people. So we returned to Germany on the last scheduled ship back across the Atlantic. What would cause a man to do this? To go from a place of great security to a place of great trial and tribulation. Bonhoeffer would tell us with these words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Do you believe that with regards to your Christianity this morning? Is it simply just a Sunday morning date that you have? Something that you can tell your friends and your family that you've been there and done that? In the classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, he would build on two contrasting ideas of grace. The first one is cheap grace. And he says this, and it's on the screen for you. He says cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. 
For some here today, cheap grace is the grace that you live. The grace that cost our Lord and Savior all that he had. And we take it and we make it simply something that we do and not who we are or who we become. He goes on to speak of costly grace, the alternative. In fact, the biblical remedy to cheap grace. And he says the following, Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price, to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake of one will pluck out of the eye that which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Now notice what he says. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift that we must be asked for. The gift, that, uh, the gift which must be asked for. The door at which men must knock. Such grace is costly. Listen to what he says. It, because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. This grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And yet it is grace because it, is, it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, the scripture says, and yet what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price. Listen to these words, too dear a price to pay for your life but delivered him up for us. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I read these words, I am profoundly convicted that my life cannot live up to the life of Bonhoeffer, let alone Jesus Christ. And if I know my congregation very well, I'm sure that many of us might be able to say the same thing this morning. You see, Bonhoeffer would live this way, not in the seclusion, uh, out away from the Nazis, but he would be imprisoned, and during his imprisonment, he would stay true to Christ, even to the point of his death, a mere 23 days before the Germans would surrender to the Allies. Bonhoeffer would be led to his death. A camp doctor who witnessed all of this wrote down these words that I hope I will be able to have said about me in the last moments of my life. He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he said again a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death would ensue after only a few seconds, and in almost the 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. In his life and in his death, Bonhoeffer shows us what it means to follow Christ to follow the calling of Christ. 
Now you say, Tim, how do we live this out? We're not under a, a regime uh, of men or women that are stealing us out of our homes and calling us to choose Christ or die. But I will say it seems more and more that our culture is moving that way. And will God's church be ready for that onslaught? But even before we think about those days, are we willing in the smaller things in life to pay for the cost of discipleship in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our families? Are we willing to put Christ above all other things? This is what this text is all about. As we look at this text this morning, and I'm limited with the amount of time that I have, but I want us to notice that there are two responses. And the two responses is the idea of checking out. You can check out from this passage, and that means you can leave it right where it's at. You can say, forget it. I want nothing to do with it. Or you can check out, that is in the financial or economic way of things, where you would take it and purchase it and make it your own. I want you to know in this text there is no middle ground. There is no a la carte package to what God has for us. We either take Christ or we leave him. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter asserts in the passage just before this his will that Christ not go to the cross. He asserts his will because he doesn't want it to happen. He's against it, and that's the struggle for us as disciples. We don't want to pursue Christ. We don't want to do what Christ says, not because we don't think it's good, but it goes against our personal agendas. It goes against what we think we should be doing or what we want in this life. And so the first thing I want us to see is that the cost of discipleship this morning involves surrendering your ego. It involves surrendering your ego. Notice verse 34 with me. It says, and calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Jesus brings the crowd to him, and he announces that he's taking applications for those who will follow him, for those who will be his disciples. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus' offer is to everyone. If anyone, he says, I want you to underline that. This isn't a call for pastors or a call to missionaries or a call uh, to people who are done living their life and, and with the last years of their life will turn over a new leaf and follow God. This is for everyone. A disciple isn't one who is based on what you've done in the past or the credentials that you have on a resume, but this is an offer that's given to rich and poor, Smart and ignorant to those who seem big in this world and those who seem quite small. It's an offer that is given freely to all. So there's no excuse there. Now this would have been an ego breaker for the disciples. They had been walking and talking and living with Jesus for the last couple of years. And when Jesus opens up this opportunity, I wonder if some of the disciples said, Hey, wait a minute, Jesus. That doesn't seem fair. We're the ones who are following you. We're the ones who are pursuing you. Why would you offer it to all? Let me tell you something. When we follow Jesus and take up our cross and die to self, we are able to do all that the disciples were doing in their life. The same intimacy, 
The same encounters with Jesus we can have that those disciples had because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Notice this would be an ego breaker for any and all who would make the decision to follow Christ. So now you know it's for all of us. Now as we make this decision, it would break down who we are because it says that we would have to come after Jesus. The scripture says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me. The Christian life is not the Jesus and Tim show or the Jesus and fill in the blank with your name show. It isn't a partnership where you and Jesus work 50-50 with one another. It is all Jesus. It is him all the time in all ways and all manner of life. It has nothing to do with us. It's not about us. I'm reminded of this just simply by the word ego, which I was told some years ago, a great way to remember what ego is all about. If you don't know it, it's edging God out. It's edging God out. And that can be done in big ways, and it can be done in very small ways. And I look at the very small ways in my life that God is edged out of Timbadal's life out of first place in my life. Oh, Jesus, you can have second or third place, but not first place. Out of being the ruler of my life. Jesus, you can be a consultant, but you can't be the ruler. You can't have veto power. And over and over again, we see that we edge God out of the glory. When someone says, well done, you say, well, thank you, and you receive it as if you brought something to the table. And this issue of ego is what keeps us as believers from living out the sacrificial life that Christ calls us to. Now notice, how do we get rid of this ego this morning? First of all, it involves denying self. Jesus tells us, aren't you so glad Jesus gives you the working job description? The phrase literally means to deny oneself. He says, uh, Jesus says there, it means literally to completely disown, to utterly separate oneself from someone. The idea here is, is the word that was used in Peter's denial of Jesus. It's the same phrase that's given in, in Matthew 26, 34. When before the high priest's home, Peter is asked, do you know this Jesus? And Peter says, I don't know him. He's disowning himself from him. He's saying, I am not a part of it. What Jesus is saying is that instead of denying ourselves from Jesus, we deny ourselves so that we can get to Jesus. Now, denying oneself is not the same thing as self-denial. Some people practice self-denial by withholding certain things from themselves, and that usually means for a good result. Over the last 24 hours, I've denied myself food and thankful for it. Because knowing that there would be a bad result if I tried to eat. But this isn't what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is speaking about is not a diet. It's not getting up and exercising. It's not saying no to certain things so that there will be more money in the bank at the end of the month so you can buy what you're looking for in six months. Denying self implies, listen to me, I'm going to stop listening to my own voice. I'm going to stop leaning on my own power. I'm going to stop trying to fulfill my own will and wishes. When I truly deny myself, Tim becomes very small and God becomes very big. Tim becomes humble and God is glorified. Tim becomes one who says, if it's your will, God, then let it be. Not my will 
just as Jesus said. It is a life that lives out 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 that says you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, this is a concept that's very foreign to us today. Even within the bookstores of Christianity, we see that they are focused, book after book is focused on catering to self how we can feel good about who we are, building our self-esteem and self-images, having us promote our own personal achievements and thoughts. And what Jesus wants us to know is that we must deny ourselves for what reason? Because what he says in John chapter 15, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You see, when we begin to understand that without the power of Christ in our lives, we can do nothing, then denying ourselves will be a whole lot easier when we start to recognize that we aren't all that we think we are. Jesus is calling those who claim Christ as their Savior to a total commitment and lordship in their lives. He calls us to disown ourselves and to give over the reins of our lives. Now, I want you to know if you want to know the tense of this word, it gives the idea of a once and for all action. You can't just do this on Sunday and go back to your life on Monday. But we must deny ourselves even when it's difficult, just as we do when it's easy. We have to deny ourselves and we need to forget about us and focus on Christ. Now notice it involves determined sacrifice. He says take up the cross. Now here we wouldn't understand that all that much. But the meaning of the cross in Jesus' day would be one that would bring great scandal, that would bring great question into the minds of the people. Really, Jesus, is that what you're asking for? Historians tell us that more than 30,000 people had been crucified under Roman rule during Jesus' time. Thus, every person, no doubt, would have known that what Jesus was talking about was something that would literally mean we could lose our lives. In that day, a cross was not a piece of jewelry nor a decoration as it is behind us. But it was an instrument of shame, humiliation, suffering, torture, and death. When a man took up his cross, what it meant was he was beginning his own death march. We don't have to look very far to remember that when Jesus carried his cross, he carried the very device that would kill him. He would be literally placing his own death on his shoulders. Because once he reached the destination, as Jesus did on Golgotha, he would carry that cross and then set it down only to be nailed to it and suffer on it and die. You see, when Jesus calls us to take up our cross, the people of his day knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, but do we? Do we understand what it means? Some people think that preaching sick is the cross, or that having a nagging spouse, or a wayward child, or a temperamental and angry boss is your cross. Some of you think that having a, a debilitating disease may be your cross. While those are all difficulties in our lives, all that fall under the issue of trials and tribulations in our life, please understand that none of these are the cross. 
When Jesus calls his disciples to take up their cross, what he's speaking of is calling us to die to ourselves. He's calling us to commit ourselves to a lifestyle of a living death. You say, well, where do you get that? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Jesus Christ who now lives in me. Taking up the cross means Tim no longer will live, but it's now Christ who lives in me. It's Christ who makes the decisions. It's Christ who turns away from temptation. It is Christ who allows me to love my enemy as I love myself. It is Christ who calls me to live the way that I do, to pursue the things I do, no longer the things that are within me that would lead me the other way. Jesus is calling us to bear that cross and to do so knowing it will bring shame and reproach, humiliation, suffering, alienation, and maybe even death. Again, this statement is a once and for all command. It is not something we do when we feel like it, but we are to take up the cross and to never lay it down until we reach the place of our death. It involves next devoting your life to following the Savior. He says, follow me. The true disciple of Jesus turns his back on self and his old way of life. The disciple takes up the cross, is willing to lay everything down. Their dreams, their desires, their wants, their pleasures, their possessions, they lay them down at the cross for one reason, for the glory of Almighty God. The true disciple of Christ takes his place behind the Lord and he follows wherever he will go. Again, this phrase suggests an ongoing action. It's again not something we follow while we're in junior high or high school or something we follow when the kids are born and they need a place to go and learn about religion. But following Christ involves every moment of every day. Let me ask you a couple questions before we move to our next point. Can we honestly say this morning that we are totally committed to Jesus when other things come before him all the time? Can we honestly say this morning that we are following Christ when we do as we please, when we please? Can we truly say that we are bearing our cross when it's difficult for us to even be faithful to the local group of believers in a church? Isn't it about time that we as God's people would examine the priorities in our lives and examine them under the ideas and thoughts and words of Jesus Christ. The price of discipleship is high, and yet Jesus says we can get it. Because there are really no cheap seats here in the discipleship of God. We can't simply think we can pray a simple prayer and go to heaven while we live our lives as we would want here on earth between now and then. We're kidding ourselves. The scripture says we are deceiving ourselves. And so what Jesus says is a reminder. The reason why we must deny self and take up the cross and follow him is because what Jesus is saying isn't, hey, I don't want you to have life. I don't want you to pursue these things. But he says, I want you to invest in eternity. Notice what he says next in verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain everything 
and forfeit his soul. The scripture makes it clear that we are to deny self. We're to become determined in our sacrifice. We are to devote ourselves to Christ. And in doing so, here is the great reward. You are investing in your eternity. That's what real discipleship will lead us to. A life that's not so focused in on the details of what we get for self, but what Christ gets out of us. How he can use us and how he can speak through, excuse me, through us and to a world that needs to hear the gospel. It is the ultimate, if I can use the words from a famous movie, it is the ultimate paying it forward that could ever be done. You see, Jesus wants us to know that if we believe in him, we can't have our own way. But let's stop for a moment and let's ask the question, what if we were to have our own way? What happens if we were to pursue this life apart from Christ? Well, you have that choice. You can turn from Christ and not live for him. And many on that day that Jesus preached these words made that decision. And many here today will do the same. I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need another boss in my life. I don't need another mom or a dad in my life. I'll take care of it on my own. I can call my own shots. And then, therefore, you can do as you please. You can live your life on your own terms. But in the end, I want you to know something. You will lose your life. That is the great mathematician's problem in spiritual things. Living your own way, being your own boss in this world, equals a life apart from Christ. Jesus tells us this. Now notice what he says that we must understand. We need to know the price of our soul. Jesus begins to remind us of a great and indispensable truth. Your soul is worth more than all the riches in the world. Solomon would begin to recognize this at the end of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he would begin to ask questions of himself like any good and mature individual will do. And he begins to look as the, one of the richest kings in all of history with all of the possessions that anyone could ever want, pursuing all the pleasures that a king would have at his disposal. And looking back on his life, Solomon says all the pursuits of those things in this world were vanity. He says they were all utterly meaningless. He says that they were the chasing after the wind. I was struck by this as I was watching the news yesterday and the news of Whitney Houston's death. A woman who had everything that you could imagine, an incredible voice, all of the riches a person could want, all of the desires to do whatever the world was before her. And yet, what do we learn about this woman? And I don't want to impugn her character. I don't know her. But what we've learned about her over her years is she struggled with drugs. Why would a person who had all that need drugs, something artificial in their life? Because when you give your life to the things of this world, you'll always be looking for something more. Jesus pulls out the scales, and he puts your life on one side, and he puts the things of the world on the other. And you know which one outweighs? Your soul means so much more than the things of this world. And yet some of us today 
are pursuing the things of this world over our own souls because we think those things are worth something, and they're not. Now, this is pretty important because some of us think that we're not all worth all that much. But Jesus says you were bought with a price. You meant something to him. You meant going to the cross for him. And he wants you to live with that thought in mind. This takes us back to taking up our cross when we see that to, to understand the price of our soul means that if we want to not live for the things of this world, then we need to abandon old pursuits. We need to abandon all of these old pursuits. When we take up the cross, we choose to follow the narrow way, not the way of the world, regardless of the, craw, of the cost. When we take up the cross, it's going to mean that we're going to live differently. Our ethics, our worldviews, our decisions, what we pursue and what we don't, what we drive and what we don't, where we live and where we don't, all of those decisions will be made through the cross, not through the ways of this world and keeping up with the Joneses or making the people think that we're important because of what we drive or where we live or who we hang out with. It will mean that we will be willing to suffer attack for Jesus' name and glory. Many of us are too quick to compromise because we want our lives to be easier. We'll give up on the ethics that God has called us to. We'll compromise in the way that we live because we'd rather compromise the cause of Christ than to be singled out and humiliated as being a believer. To take up our cross literally means to willing identify ourselves with, his, with Christ, his death, his word, regardless of what it will cost us personally, publicly, or financially. This is not a side of Christianity that we hear about. It's not popular to talk about sacrifice, death, and suffering. But let me tell you something. If that's not a part of your Christianity, then you're not a Christian. There are no cheap seats in the Christian walk. The only thing in Christianity that there is is a high price a price that we must pay. And Jesus says the only way we can pay it is by living as a genuine disciple of his. Finally, it involves embracing godly principles. This brings us back to following him. Jesus calls us to be his constant followers. Some of us follow Jesus on Sunday but take a different path on Monday. Some people follow the Lord when they need help but take another path when things get better. This is not what Jesus is looking for. He's calling his people to make a radical commitment to follow him all the time, even to the very ends of their life. But what I'm trying to tell you is the following. You have a choice to make. You can follow Christ and give up on a lot of the aspirations and dreams you can allow the things of this world to be withdrawn from your life on a daily basis, willingly giving those things up because Christ has called us to that, or we can live for ourselves, remembering what Matthew 7 tells us, and that is that when we get to heaven, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. It is easy for us to say, Lord, Lord, but it is hard to live that lordship in our lives. The final thing that I want us to look at this morning is our third point, and that is knowing your ending is really just the beginning. Verse 38 says, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What Jesus says is, hey, the reason why we invest in the future is there is a future coming. Now think about it from this way. The reason why we invest money for our retirements and invest money for our future is because we know there's a reality that's coming. We are going to grow old. And this wise thing to do is to put some money away so that when disease comes, when trouble comes, when there are issues in our later years of life that we will have thought ahead and put some money away to be able to take care of the needs that are there. What Jesus is speaking about is the issue of spiritual retirement. And what he's articulating is he's saying there is a future. And what I want you to know is that your future, our beginning of eternity is far greater than the 70, 80, or 100 years we live on this earth. This is just the beginning. And the question is, are you going to allow this little dot that we call our lives to be the defining factor of the long line that we call eternity? All that you're living for today Again, I don't want to impugn the question of, of her motives or heart, but you've got to ask the question that Whitney Houston is asking that this morning. Was it worth it all if she finds herself in hell? I can assure you she would say it, it wasn't. Jesus says that if you are ashamed of me and my words, then there is a bad result that is coming. This word ashamed literally means unwilling, or restrained because of fear, of shame, ridicule, or disapproval. It means that those who make the decision not to follow after Christ, to pursue the salvation He gives, who are unwilling to allow Him to drive the proverbial car in our spiritual lives, then we will find an end that we will not be too very happy with. Jesus is calling us to it. And what he says is the following. Hiding Christ, write this down, will result in him rejecting you. Can I tell you something? Jesus desires that none will perish, but all will come to a saving knowledge of him. Yes, in this age. But in the age to come, he will come as the judge, as the ruler, as the holy of holies, who will reject all who are not covered by his sacrifice on the cross. And on that day, a price will be paid. And Jesus will look in your life and he will say, was my blood placed on your life so that you might have eternal life? And for those who are ashamed of him, the answer will be no. And because of that, people will face a terrible judgment and they will endure a place called hell that will be filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus will say, as I said before, I never knew you. He'll say, get out of my presence. I'm done with you. But why would this be the case? The answer is is because we love the sinful and adulterous generation more than we loved Christ. But there's good news, and let me close with this. Even though it's not in the text, it's, it's there, because if we're ashamed of Christ, then he will be ashamed of us. But the flip side of that is true as well. When we stand with Christ 
it will result in him receiving us. And when we do that, when the person that follows God lives a life that is dedicated to Christ, not perfectly, not automatically, but dies to self, says no to sin, and turns to Christ, Christ says, in that day, I will lift you up. In that day, I will say, well done, good and faithful servant. In that day, as you put on the cross of mine, as you partook in my suffering and in my death and in my burial, I will partake with you in the resurrection from the dead. This is the great hope of salvation. But sadly, the way that we offer this to people is that simply just say yes and you're in. And we don't remind people. We don't preach the true gospel that says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. At about 1,000 A.D., the tomb of Charlemagne, the king of Franks, was opened. This great king had been dead for about 180 years. And when they opened his tomb, they found a great treasure but they also found an amazing sight. They saw the skeleton of Charlemagne sitting on the throne with his crown still sitting on his skull. In the bony hands of the skeleton, they found a book, a book of the Gospels. And the bony finger of this skeleton was pointing to this particular text. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Charlemagne was a great king, but in the end, none of that really mattered. When it came time for him to die, Charlemagne left his robes, his riches, and his royalty. And he left them behind to meet an eternity standing before the great God. When you and I reach the end of our earthly lives, Nothing we've achieved, nothing we've accumulated in this life will ever matter. All that will matter in that hour is what we did with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Did we willingly lose our life to Christ so that he might be lifted up? My prayer is today that we will search our hearts and we will ask the tough questions this morning. Are we a true follower of Christ? Are we willing to pay the cost no matter the price? Because when we do, God says there's a future that's waiting for us that is so glorious and so awesome. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people, followers of his. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would do some spiritual surgery in our lives today. That we would check our hearts and our motivations. We would check the desires and the things that we have. And ask, are these the things that a Christ follower would be doing or would have? Lord, you don't call us to poverty. You don't call us to a life of, of nothing. But all you simply ask is that you be first and preeminent as we read about in our scripture during the worship time. That you would be first. And Lord, I pray 
that we would be a church of people that make you first, that make you the great filter in our lives, that everything goes through you and the cross and your word. Lord, when we do this, even though our lives may not be that great here on earth, you promise us great riches in heaven. And for that, Lord, we look. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people, we would be a church that invests in eternity and not in the temporal. Lord, that we would do so so that you might receive glory, that you might receive the honor that is due through all that we have done. Now, Lord, lead us from this place, pursuing that following of Christ and what it means. Lord, we know that it will be challenged this week. And we pray by the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might stand true to it. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.